Chapter Nineteen of Pipefuls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pipefuls by Christopher Morley. Chapter Nineteen. An Early Train. The course of events has compelled me for several months to catch an early train at Broad Street three times a week. I call it an early train but of course these matters are merely relative seven forty five are the figures illuminated over the gateway not so very precocious perhaps but quite rathe enough for one of harun al rashid temper who seldom seeks the oblivion of repose boswell's phrase before one a m nothing is more pathetic in human nature than its faculty of self-deception winding up the alarm clock the night before i meditate as to the exact time to elect for its disturbing buzz. If I set it at six-thirty, that will give me plenty of time to shave and reach the station with leisure for a pleasurable cup of coffee. But, so frail is the human will, when I wake at six-thirty I will think to myself, there is plenty of time, and probably turn over for another five minutes. This will mean a hideous spasm of awakening conscience. About seven-ten, an unbathed and unshaven tumult of preparation, Malisons on the shoe manufacturers who invented boots with eyelets all the way up, a frantic sprint to Sixteenth Street, and one of those horrid intervals that shake the very citadel of human reason, when I ponder whether it is safer to wait for a possible car, or must start hot-foot for the station at once. All this is generally decided by setting the clock for six-fifty. Then, if I am spry, I can be under way by seven-twenty and have a little time to be philosophical at the corner of sixteenth and pine of the vile seizures of passion that shake the bosom when a car comes along seems about to halt and then passes without stopping of the spiritual scars these crises leave on the soul of the victim i cannot trust myself to speak it does not always happen thank goodness one does not always have to throb madly up sixteenth with head retorted over one shoulder to see if a car may still be coming while the legs make what speed they may on slittery paving sometimes the car does actually appear and one buffets aboard and is buried in a brawny human mass there is a stop and one wonders fiercely whether a horse is down ahead and one had better get out at once and run for it tightly wedged in the heart of the car nothing can be seen it is all very nerve-wracking and i study for quietness of mind the familiar advertising card on the white-bearded old man announcing it is really very remarkable that a cigar of this quality can be had for seven cents suppose however that fortune is with me i descend at market street and the city hall dial shining softly in the fast-paling blue of morning marks seven thirty now i begin to enjoy myself i reflect on the curious way in which time seems to stand still during the last minutes before the departure of a train the half-hour between seven and seven-thirty has vanished in a gruesome flash now follow fifteen minutes of exquisite dalliance every few moments i look suddenly and savagely at the clock to see if it can be playing some saturnine trick no even now it is only seven-thirty-two in the lively alertness of the morning mind a whole wealth of thought and accurate observation can be crammed into a few seconds i halt for a moment at the window of that little lunch-room on market street between sixteenth and fifteenth 
where the food comes swiftly speeding from the kitchen on a moving belt. I wonder whether to have breakfast there. It is such fun to see a platter of pale yellow scrambled eggs sliding demurely beside the porcelain counter and whipped dexterously off in front of you by the presiding waiter. But the superlative coffee of the Broad Street Station lunch counter generally lures me on. What mundane joy can surpass the pleasure of approaching the station lunch counter with full ten minutes to satisfy a morning appetite? Morning, Colonel, says the waiter, recognizing a steady customer. Wheat cakes and coffee, you cry, with one deft gesture, it seems. He has handed you a glass brimming with ice water and spread out a snowy napkin. In another moment, here is the coffee, with the generous jug of cream. You splash in a large lump of ice to make it cool enough to drink. Perhaps the seat next to you is empty, and you put your books and papers on it, thus not having to balance them gingerly on your knees. All round you is a lusty savor of satisfaction, the tinkle of cash registers, napkins fluttering and flashing across the counters, colored waiters darting to and fro, great clouds of steam rising where the big dish covers are raised on the cooking tables. You see the dark brown coffee gently quivering in the glass gauge of the nickel boiler, then here comes the wheat cakes nowhere else on earth i firmly believe are they cooked to just that correct delicacy of golden brown color nowhere else are they so soft and light of texture so hot so beautifully overlaid with a smooth almost intangible suggestion of crispness two golden butter pats salute the eye and a jug of syrup it is now seven thirty eight as everyone knows the correct thing is to start immediately on the first cake using only syrup the method of dealing with the other two is classic one lifts the upper one and places a whole pat of butter on the lower cake then one replaces the upper cake upon the lower leaving the butter to its fate in that hot and enviable embrace the butter liquefies and spreads itself gently anointing the field of coming action upon the upper shield one smilingly distributes the second butter pat knifed off into small slices for a greater speed of melting by the time the first cake has been eaten with the syrup the other two will be ready for a manifest destiny the butter will be docile and submissive now after again making sure of the time seven forty the syrup is brought into play and the palate has the congenial task of determining whether the added delight of melting butter outweighs the greater hotness and primal thrill of the first cake which was glossed with the syrup only you drain your coffee to the dregs gaze pityingly on those rushing in to snap up a breakfast before the eight o'clock leaves for new york pay your check and saunter out to the train it is seven forty three this to be sure is only the curtain raiser to the pleasures to follow this has been a physical and carnal pleasure now follow delights of the mind in the great gloomy shed wafts and twists of thick steam are jetting upward heavily coiled in the cold air in the train you smoke two pipes and read the morning paper then you are set down at haverford it is like a fairyland of unbelief trees and shrubbery are crusted and sheathed in crystal lucid like chandeliers in the flat thin light along the fence as you go up the hill you marvel at the scarlet berries in the hedge gleaming through the glassy ribs of the bushes the old willow tree by the conklin gate is etched against the sky like a japanese drawing it has a curious greenish color beneath that gray sky there is some mystery in all this it seems more beautiful than a merely mortal earth vexed by sinful men has any right to be 
there is some ice palace in hans andersen which is something like it in a little grove the boughs bent down with their shining glazery creak softly as they sway in the moving air the evergreens are clotted with lumps and bags of transparent icing their fronds sag to the ground a pale twinkling blueness sifts over distant vistas the sky whitens in the south and points of light leap up to the eye as the wind turns a loaded branch a certain seriousness of demeanour is noticeable on the generally unfurrowed brows of student friends mid-years are on and one sees them walking freighted with precious and perishable erudition toward the halls of trial they seem a little oppressed with care too preoccupied to relish the entrancing pallor of this crystallized eden one carries gravely a cushion and an alarm clock not such a bad theory of life perhaps to carry in the crisis of existence a cushion of philosophy and an alarm of resolution end of chapter nineteen